Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Does your tight schedule prevent you from sitting down with your Bible? Do you sometimes find the Bible confusing? The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study with the church, past and present. It's hosted by Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Pastor Will Whedon. Learn more at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. An evangelical and Catholic podcast, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Edward Fazer is well-known to First Things readers. He is professor of philosophy at Pasadena College, author of, among other things, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide, and other books, many other books. And there is a new one out called All One in Christ, a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory. That is our topic today, a very timely one. Welcome, Professor Fazer. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right. Well, you know, I, I, I read through the book, and your opening definition of racism is a sound and sensible one, and I want to read it fully. Racism is the belief that not all races have the same basic rights or duties and or supernatural destiny, and therefore not all races should be equal before the law, find equal admittance to an economic, cultural, civic, and social life, or benefit from a fair sharing in the nation's riches. I, I have to ask, it: is that definition all you? Did, did, did you come up with that? I think it's a wonderful definition, or did you did you borrow that from other sources? I, I want to give you credit if I can. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm afraid you can't. That's not my definition, or at least not entirely. I derive it from um, a statement from Pope uh, St. Paul VI, and I don't have my book in front of me, so I don't have all the references in front of me, so I don't recall exactly what document it was he uh, that he commented on this on. But there, uh, but in that document, he was defining um, how, from the point of view of Catholic moral theology, we ought to regard the races and their relationship to one another. So I found in that a useful definition of racism is simply the denial of what the Pope there affirms. And the term racism, as I don't need to tell you, is, often, uh, is more often bandied about and flung than it's ever defined. So I wanted to start the book out with a clear definition of what racism is, especially since since the book is written from the point of view of Catholic moral theology, what counts as racism from the point of view of Catholic doctrine. And so anyway, I found in uh, Pope Paul VI's uh, remark there a useful definition. One of the things I like about the definition is that it doesn't disallow marking differences in races, in, in different areas, even some of the more complicated and delicate differences, such as those on standardized tests, that one can mark those differences without, well, without implying racist behavior, without implying discrimination, that, that we can look, look at that. Is that... You well, agree? you find you find, and and I quote a number of church documents uh, which deal with the subject of racism on on precisely this subject, and you find that uh, the church explicitly allows that there might be any number of uh, differences between ethnic groups, between races, between cultures, and so forth, uh, and that the church doesn't say anything about that, but that she doesn't need to because the condemnation of racism goes much deeper than that much deeper than anything that biological science or social science could either discover or undermine. The unity of the races and the evil of racism is grounded instead in 
two fundamental facts about us uh, affirmed by Catholic theology. The first of them has to do with the fact that our nature as rational animals uh, is grounded in an, in an immaterial soul, in the, in the human soul understood as a, a non-material thing. It's something that we can know about through rational arguments, through traditional philosophical arguments for the, uh, what's called the immateriality or non-bodily nature of the soul. Uh, so it's by no means just sort of, you know, floating in midair without any sort of rational foundation. It definitely has a rational foundation in traditional uh, philosophy of the kind you see in Plato, Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas. Um, but it's a fact about us that goes deeper than anything that biological science could either discover or undermine. And it's because of this uh, rational nature, which is, round, which is grounded in the soul rather than in the body, and it's shared by all human beings, that all human beings have the same basic rights and the same basic moral dignity. So that's one of the two foundations of the condemnation of racism, is our common human nature insofar as we have uh, in common um, uh, non-physical souls that ground our dignity. The other foundation in Catholic theology is supernatural rather than natural. In other words, it goes beyond our nature and has to do instead with what uh, God offers us through Christ um, in the form of the beatific vision the, and, and redemption from sin, which is not something we're owed by nature. It's something that derives from grace rather than nature. But it's also, you know, uh, quite clearly taught in Scripture and throughout the 2,000-year history of the church that this supernatural gift of the beatific vision and redemption from sin is offered to all human beings alike of whatever race, whatever, whatever ethnicity. This is why St. Paul says in the, in the line that I uh, quote in the title of my book, that um, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all one in Christ in that sense, that we're all offered the same opportunity for salvation. So because of that common supernatural end, as well as the common human nature uh, that we share, um, it's, in, it's in those philosophical and theological foundations that the church's condemnation of racism is to be found, not in anything that biological science or social science could either discover or overthrow. Yeah. You go back in the history of the church to see these principles uh, laid out and, and implemented, and you note that the church was pretty early, when you look at institution, world institutions, pretty early in its condemnation of racial justifications for slavery, wasn't it? Yes, people often think that um, the church's condemnation of racism and its condemnation of uh, race-based slavery in particular, are somehow novelties, that they're very recent, that, that, that the church only kind of came around and caught up with the rest of the world uh, at Vatican II or something. Nothing could be further from the truth as I document at length in the book. In fact, you find from the very beginning of the modern slave trade, the popes in no uncertain terms condemned it and even more specifically condemned the racial basis of it, the idea that some races were inferior to others and could therefore be treated as chattel, could be treated as property or the way animals might be treated. The popes have consistently condemned this for 500 years. It's true, of course, that uh, Catholics haven't always uh, gone along with the teaching of the church on this, but that's true of, you know, uh, that's true of all kinds of teachings. Um, but it was the teaching of the church going back to, uh, to the beginning. Uh, I quote, for example, it's Pope Paul... I can't remember which Paul it was, but it's one, one of the popes. I think it's, it's a pope. It's a Pope Paul. Um, I wish I had my book in front of me here. Um, but where he not only condemns the idea that the Europeans somehow had the right to enslave the, um, the Indians of the New World, 
but he characterizes this as a, a satanic idea. That's pretty mm. strong language. And not only does he declare it as a, as a satanic idea or associated with the devil, but he also uses the strongest language in condemning it. He uses the phrase, I, I declare and define. Uh, that's the kind of language popes use when they're making infallible uh, doctrinal statements, doctrinal definitions. So from the very beginning, in the, in the harshest language and in the most authoritative manner possible, you find the popes condemning the idea that um, Europeans had any business stripping um, uh, peoples of the New World uh, and others as well. He says, and others, uh, he, you know, he has in mind uh, African uh, slaves and so forth, slipping of their, stripping them of their rights, treating them as if they were uh, uh, mere property and so forth. This is condemned from the very beginning. And then you see a series of popes repeat this over the centuries. And I document all this at length. It's quoted all, all in the book. So that the, the Vatican II's condemnation of slavery is not some new, uh, it's not some new teaching. It's not some novelty. It's just the reiteration of what was said for, for centuries. Let me give you a, a concrete example Ed, let me tell, tell us what, what the church would say. What if you had a war, maybe even a just war, in some sense, a thousand years ago, and an officer takes a captive from the other army after his side wins, and they, they complete their conquest, and the officer takes that captive soldier back to his, to his homeland and makes him a servant. One, would that count as slavery? And two, did the church have any opinion about that practice? Yeah, so another source of confusion here is that um, people who comment on this issue often, I think sometimes unknowingly, they just don't know any better, though in other cases I think there's, there's some intellectual dishonesty going, along, going on. But they fail to note that um, we need to draw a distinction, and the church always has drawn a distinction, between different kinds of servitude and different kinds of things that have gone under this label slavery. Now, what we usually think of these days when we hear the word slavery is what's called chattel slavery, which involves um, treating another human being as if he were just an animal or as if he were some inanimate object where you have total rights over him and you can do whatever you want with him just the way you would with you know, your car or uh, with your dog or something. Um, the church has never taught that that's legitimate. It's never taught that that's okay. In fact, it's always condemned that consistently. So... Um, as I say, when the popes began to con uh, condemn the modern slave trade and what we usually think of we hear of slavery, like the African slave trade and what was going on in the in American South before the Civil War, uh, when they condemned that sort of thing beginning 500 years ago, that was not some novel teaching. That was consistent with what the church has always said. But there are other practices, other kinds of servitude, which sometimes have been called, quote, slavery, unquote, but which are different from chattel slavery. This brings us to the, the sort of example you, you brought up. So two of them would be, first of all, what's called indentured servitude, which involves um, a, a kind of a, a lifelong period of service to another person in payment of a debt. It's like an extension of, you know, you owe someone money and you may owe, you know, you may say, okay, look, I'll work it off, okay? Uh, for over the course of a year. Well, indentured servitude would be working it off of the course of you know, many years, maybe even a lifetime, in payment of a debt. Another uh, kind of servitude would be penal servitude, which involves uh, working for another in payment of, uh, uh, of uh, it, sorry, as a penalty for a crime, as a punishment for a crime. And the idea there being that, well, if you can, in principle, strip someone of his freedom, of his liberty, 
or of his property by fining him because he's committed a crime, then by extension, uh, you might be able to exact uh, lifelong servitude from him as punishment for a crime. Now, it's under that second category of penal servitude that the sort of thing you described a moment ago about you know captives taken in a just war being, uh, being made servants and so forth, it would, it would fall under that category. Now, the church traditionally has held that, well, I mean, if a limited period of servitude in punishment for a crime or in payment of a debt is not wrong, then a prolonged period of servitude for those particular reasons, paying a debt or being punished for a crime, uh, those, those can't be in, in principle or intrinsically wrong either. At the same time, the settled position of the, of the moral theologians of the church, and this became you know, the church's own position, was that these practices are so morally hazardous and have such a tendency to degenerate into chattel slavery mm. that it's right. better just to get rid of them. Um, but that's very different from holding that chattel slavery, just taking innocent people and enslaving them, as happened with the African slave trade, that's very different from saying that that's okay. The church has never said that's okay. So when people comment on this issue, they, I, mean, I mean, it's like so many other things. They, they demagogue the issue. They don't make fine distinctions. They don't know the history of the church's teaching. They don't know moral theology. They just like grandstanding. Uh, yeah. Often in the service of an agenda, they want to say, well, the church has changed these other things. And let's, how about we change these further teachings we don't like on sexual morality or whatever it might be. So there's often an agenda behind this this kind of sloppy thinking about this particular topic. Yeah, you, you imply throughout the book that the, those first two principles you, you raise, the soul, the supernatural uh, 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 welcoming of all, actually gives the church a more solid foundation on which to discuss issues of racism, slavery, and that much secular thinking, stripped of those principles, about racism at the current time, it's so hasty, it's so superficial. And one, one example is the way in which uh, so many liberal secularists judge any national loyalty, loyalty to country, as really uh, uh, leading inevitably to some form of racism. What do you think of that? Yeah. So I, this is a topic I address at some length in, uh, in a chapter of the book. This is just, a, you know, this is a single chapter devoted to this very topic. And the, the traditional position in, in both natural law theory and in Catholic moral theology is that um, a, a, a special love for one's own country, for one's own nation, it's not only not wrong, it's actually morally required. It's an extension of the commandment that we honor our parents uh, because our country is kind of an extension of our parents. It provides, it's, you know, it's provided the context within which we were born, within which we live our lives and are formed in our youth and so on and so forth. So it's an extension of the commandment that we honor our parents. Um, so patriotism is a virtue and, and um, not being patriotic is a vice. And this is a standard Catholic theology. This is not some right-wing idea. This is a this is a Catholic idea, and it always has been, and it's reflected in the Catechism of the Church to this day. Now, there can be excess, of course. Some some a person can have an excessive love of one's nation to the point of being hostile to other nations, or thinking that one's own nation has a right to dominate uh, other nations and so forth. And of course, that's evil. But that's that's a vice of excess. And um, as, you know, as all moral theologians know, and certainly all Thomists know, um, 
and outside of theology, as all you know, readers of Aristotle know, a virtue is always a mean between extremes. It's a middle ground between extremes. And so one extreme where patriotism is concerned is the extreme of you know, what's sometimes called jingoism, where you, you have such an exaggerated attachment to your own nation that you, you treat it almost as a kind of a deity. It's a kind of idolatry. And it's often associated with hostility to other nations. And uh, yes, of course, that's wrong. That's to be avoided. That's, that's regarded as sinful. But there's also an opposite extreme vice, which is um, insufficient love for one's nation, insufficient loyalty to or attachment to one's nation. Um, that's also sinful. Uh, that's also a vice to be avoided. People these days often think that you know, somehow the Christian ideal is to dissolve nations and to have no loyalty to anything but the human race in this kind of gauzy cosmopolitanism. There's n- absolutely nothing in Christianity that teaches that. In fact, it teaches the opposite of that. And it, certainly the Catholic Church teaches the opposite of that. As I quote at length in the, um, in the book, this is, a, this is a topic that was very dear to St. John Paul II. And he addressed it at length in his book, Memory and Identity, and discussed the traditional Catholic and natural law teaching on loyalty to, uh, to the nation uh, and how it's, a, it, it's grounded itself in human nature and so it's not something that can be changed. And he explicitly rejects the idea that it, could be, that it can be rejected in the name of a kind of internationalism which would want to dissolve national boundaries and replace loyalty to one's own country with, say, loyalty just to the democratic process or loyalty to international... Um, institutions or uh, what have you. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, throughout your book, it's, uh, it comes across quite well that the church is very firm and clear on a lot of these matters, but there is an implicit critique, I think, that... Uh, much of the current leadership of the church, the bishops and many of the priests, they're not so firm and clear on on these matters that they they don't articulate the doctrine uh, very well. They're 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 soft. They're mushy on it. Is that true? Well, I think it is true for many of them, and there's a there's a tremendous pressure. I mean, there always is at any point in history uh, pressure to kind of conform to the zeitgeist and to conform to what the powers that be uh, want you to think. Uh, but that's especially true in, in modern times where uh, churchmen often uh, seem to think that they're, they have to play the heavy, they have to play the bad guy, and uh, if they uphold traditional teaching, then they're going to be uh, demonized in the mass media. They're going to, you know, they're going to be bad things will be said about them in the New York Times or on CNN or whatever. And that's true. That those things are going to happen. They happen all the time. So there's a temptation to say, okay, how can I be loyal to the church and represent the Christian faith and and avoid, you know, being bad mouthed in this way and demonized and so forth? I know. I'll just focus on those aspects of Catholic teaching. That, sa- that sound or can be made to sound in harmony 
with the zeitgeist, with the progressive spirit of the age. And I'll just, I just won't say much about uh, the parts that are more offensive to the spirit of the age. Uh, just not talk about those. And so play up the things that, um, uh, that, are, that are more popular. And so yeah. in that way, you get, a, you get a very one-sided presentation of Catholic doctrine on a number of issues, on immigration, on um, uh, questions about racism, on I, I, I was going to ask about on and on and on lots lots of things. I was going to ask about immigration. What what limits does the church set on on immigration? Maybe I'll put it this way: What would the Catholic Church? What did the Catholic Church think? The leaders think of Donald Trump's "Build the Wall." Well, you 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 know, I mean, <laughs> you, you know, you got people who were offended by that idea. Nobody was tearing down the walls at the, the Vatican, you know, as a result. So there's kind of an inconsistency there. But um, this is a good example of how uh, the, the public presentation of the church's teaching is often one-sided. And things that are explicitly there in the catechism and other sources, they're just kind of left uh, to, to rot between the pages of the, of the books. And the only ones that are, that are kind of trumpeted in articles and interviews and so forth are, the again, the aspects of the church's teaching that... Uh, that might seem friendlier to the progressive spirit of the age. So, for example, as I document in the book, uh, you get the catechism, you get the compendium of the social doctrine of the church, you get statements from popes, from John Paul II to Benedict to Francis himself, all right. of which explicitly acknowledge that the when when welcoming immigrants— and absolutely, it's part of the church's teaching that any country needs to be open to immigrants, especially those who are fleeing persecution, those who are fleeing economic distress. Absolutely, that's part of the story. But these sources also explicitly say that it's up to the prudential, the prudential judgment of the governing authorities to determine how many immigrants could be taken in and what the uh, conditions are under which they can be taken in. And this yeah. th that these conditions can include things like the economic situation and the needs of uh, the workers in the country that the immigrants want to come to. And it can include things like the, um, the cultural cohesion and prospects for assimilation. Um, Pope Francis himself explicitly uh, was asked about this in an interview that I, that I quote from in the book, where he acknowledges that there is an issue, a worry about assimilation, you have to worry about that, and we need to show prudence and wisdom in determining the conditions under which immigrants can be uh, allowed in. John Paul II said the same thing. Uh, Benedict XVI said the same thing. But you never find these, these things quoted. You never find passages from the Catechism that acknowledge this quoted, that insist, in addition, for example, that immigrants have to obey the laws of the countries that they seek to immigrate to. Um, so, uh, uh, like I say, the presentation of the teaching is one-sided. It's only those aspects that point one direction, that seem to point one direction, that are quoted, and the ones that balance them, are, those are simply ignored. They're treated as if they were a dead letter. Last issue uh, that, that we'll cover here, uh, Ed, is what is Catholicism's take on critical race theory, CRT? Yeah, so what I would say is this. That naturally, there's no church document because this is a very recent phenomenon, and it's only become a kind of a national craze, as it were, a, a kind of a national madness, in my view, in the last three years or so. And so there's no you know, official church document on critical race theory. It's too recent a thing for that to have happened. All the same, as I demonstrate in the book, the church has explicitly said things that are flatly incompatible 
with the central claims of critical race theory. So by implication, the church clearly condemns it, and it's certainly not compatible with it, even if it hasn't, you know, by name talked about critical race theory, because it's, it's only very recently, again, that it's become a, a well-known uh, a body of ideas. But the central teaching of critical race theory, I would say, is the idea that racism absolutely permeates every nook and cranny of, uh, of modern society and permeates deeply into the thinking of every citizen, even those who think of themselves as anti-racist, even the, those who think of themselves as champions of civil rights and the equality of all races and so forth. For critical race theory, even those people are really, maybe even without realizing it, deep down racists, and uh, their thinking is entirely molded by racism. Racism is the lens through which everything is seen, according to critical race theory. So it's analogous in this way to the Marxist idea that absolutely every aspect of society, culture, uh, law, religion, morality, its art, literature, etc., is permeated by the economic interests of the ruling class. Critical race theory is, people often say, well, you know, critical race theory, it's, it's not Marxism, and it's, it's naive and shallow to label it Marxism. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's not literally Marxism, but it's very closely parallel. In fact, it's essentially uh, Marxism, but with race um, substituted for class and for racial analysis substitute for economic analysis. So it's an exaggeration, an extreme exaggeration, of the influence uh, of race and questions of race on um, culture and politics, just like Marxism is an extreme overemphasis on the significance of economics for interpreting culture and politics. And so let me give you some examples. You know, some well-known examples would be the way that, because if you say, well, how does this allegedly omnipresent racism manifest itself, the critical race theorists will say, well, for one thing, in uh, things like microaggressions and implicit bias, what are those? Microaggressions would be uh, acts of hostility against people of other races that are so subtle that the person who's uh, committing these alleged acts doesn't even know he's committing them. So, you know, a, a stock example would be you're, you're jogging and you pass someone of another race and you don't smile at that person. Well, that's really, you might even realize it yourself, that's really an act of racism against, against that other person. Apparently nobody ever just has a bad day or is distracted. <laughs> There's this hyper paranoia. Everything must really be racism deep down. That would be one example. Another example would be inequities. So the claim is that if you have, for example, 10% of a certain population of a country is of a certain race, but less than 10% of the stockbrokers in that country are of that race, that's an inequity, that's a disparity, that entails racism. That must be racism. There's no other explanation. Now, this is never actually consistently followed because if you have, for example, uh, uh, someone who's not, or, or a group that's not white, Asians, say, or, or, or uh, uh, African-Americans in the context of basketball who are overrepresented in a certain field, that's not treated as if it's racism. It only ever goes one way. So it's not consistently yeah. applied. But that's allegedly an, an instance of racism. But here's another one, one last. This is a, this is a big one, an extremely important one, and it, but it tells you how paranoid critical race theory is. For critical race theory, even traditional civil rights ideas, traditional civil rights policy is racist. The idea that of colorblindness, that we should treat all people equally regardless of their race and not see them as members of a race but just as individuals, and that we should not discriminate against any race, those ideas, critical race theory says, are racist. 
we should see everything in terms of race. We should see every individual in terms of the race he or she represents. We should see white people in particular, whiteness, as critical race theorists call it, as pernicious, and we should discriminate in a way so as to eliminate inequities and to eliminate the influence of so-called whiteness and white supremacy and so forth. Um, so, so, yeah, go, go right ahead. And all the, the uh, from your, your principles that you began with the Catholic Church, this is obviously contrary. Absolutely. The basic, so, fundamental, you know, kindergarten. Yeah. Kindergarten level principle. Catholicism rules this out. I mean, for one thing, <laughs> when addressing... Um, questions of racism, the church uh, explicitly condemns any form of discrimination, whereas you get popularizers of, of critical race theory like Ibram Kendi saying, no, we need discrimination. We need to discriminate against races in order to, uh, right. in order to achieve equity. Furthermore, the church explicitly condemns the Marxist idea that society is made up of groups that are inherently hostile to one another, that society is basically a story of struggle, class struggle, say, between inherently hostile groups. The church explicitly, repeatedly condemns that, sees society as a partnership uh, rather than a, a conflict or war. But critical race theory says, no, societies are essentially made up of inherently hostile races. Uh, the, the white race on the one hand and people of color on the other. And yeah. justice requires the latter discriminating against the former in order to restore equity. Again, there couldn't be a clearer conflict with what the church says about uh, in her social teaching about the relation of groups that make up society. The book is All One in Christ, A Catholic Critique of Racism and Critical Race Theory. Professor Fazer, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.